Frenchy War Stories, episode 20, Libby Connors. Just a disclaimer before I go any further, uh, this podcast and the content within it being spoken and also in each episode uh, may be heavy for some people. We may mention massacres, we may mention individuals, and we definitely will be uh, mentioning some heavy uh, topics uh, in Frontier War Stories. So um, if you feel the need that you have to switch off or, you know, uh, you need to sort of have a conversation with, with some other people about the content that you're hearing because you feel it's too heavy, please do so. And without further ado, uh, welcome to Frontier War Stories. Before I go any further, I would like to pay my respects to the country on which I am recording this podcast from and also my guest and the listeners. And I would also uh, like to pay my respects to all the Aboriginal people who was involved in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 and lasted till as early as the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued to fight. And I'd also like to pay my respects to all Aboriginal people today across this beautiful continent. In each episode of Frontier War Stories, I speak with Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the Frontier Wars, and these are our war stories. In episode 20, I speak with Libby Connors, an author of an amazing book called Warrior. I've had Libby on uh, for quite some time. Uh, this will be the third time I've actually had Libby on, so it's an, it's, it's an honour and it's amazing to have you back on uh, Frontier War Story. So thanks for uh, joining me again. No worries, bro. So the last two times that I spoke to you, uh, the first time was about Dundalee. The second time uh, was about the commemoration um, of Dundalee uh, on January uh, the 5th. Um, yes. He was hung in what is now known as Post Office Square. Um, in this episode, <clears throat> I remember through that we, we chatted about uh, Multagora Moppy um, and you mentioned Billy Barlow. And I think we said to each other that we'll have to catch up and have a yarn uh, about Billy. So um, thank mm. you for you know coming on and, and having a conversation with me about him. Um, but before mm. we get to Billy Barlow, <clears throat> I just met, we, we, we were talking off air about uh, places, um, you know, Post Office Square. Um, I guess we'd like to sort of say, like, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years or 10 to 12 years, it's becoming more and more synonymous with people uh, of what that area signified many, many years ago. That was the old gallows. Um, many people were hung there. Um, and the last official public hanging was of uh, Dundalee, um, an mm. Aboriginal warrior uh, from southeast Queensland. Um, and then across from that um, is, is uh, Anzac Square, a very significant and sacred place, um, especially for uh, returned servicemen and people who honour and pay respects to, to Anzacs and, 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 and servicemen and women as well. Um, there's a, you know, and, and these, like, one thing that I just wanted to sort of get into really quickly was having a conversation about significant areas uh, or significant mm. statues um, that are honoured, you know, um, that, that honours sort of the, uh, the early colonial white history of this country. 
but then also these areas that we sort of go past every day in our daily commute um, also hold some significance to Aboriginal people. As I just mentioned, Post Office Square and Anzac Square, you know, sort of speak to that about how um, significant each uh, either end of sort of that strip is. Um, and I dare say, you know, people would go, you know, would sort of, you know, not want to attend sort of either end of it as well, and and sort of look at and and look at the imbalance of um mm. of the significance. So um, yeah, like you know, through your work, uh, I'm sure you would have come up come across many different areas of significance yeah. that may not be well known today, and also you would have come across many significant areas of sort of, you know, significance to European uh, settlers as well. Mm. Yes, and when you're speaking of somebody like Billy Barlow, so he worked at The Gap. He took some work for a while in the 1840s on a sheep station that later became the suburb of The Gap. So, um, yeah, driving along Waterworks Road until it becomes whatever it becomes as it goes further northwest. Uh, I never drive on that road without thinking about Billy Barlow and the fact that he once worked there. Um, other places, he came He came right into the CBD uh, once Dunderley was arrested because he carried out payback for those who had cooperated with the white authorities to see Dunderley arrested. Um, but he also was reported to be, have led warriors um, through the suburb at Eagle Farm there and at Breakfast Creek. So they're probably places Ray Kirkhove's already spoken about um, that also were places that I um, linked to, to Billy Barlow, um, as well as some of his story um, has links to, to uh, Whiteside and the area of, of Petrie, what, are, what is now part of... Um, uh, those big suburbs near the Pine River there, um, he has he has connections to all of those as well as to um, uh, quite an involved story, but he sort of has connections to St Helena as well and to Redcliffe. Um, there, there, yes, I'm sure there are. So the Quandamooka will have stories associated with parts of Moreton Bay, and Billy Barlow was associated with Bribey Island like Dunderley, uh, and there are also uh, places in the northern parts of the bay that he is linked to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I've just sort of got up some little details of him that I think uh, it's a paper by yourself and Alex Bond. Um, and, yeah, it just sort of says yeah, he's, he was born around 1825, as you mentioned, uh, in the Pine Rivers area, Um his sort of occupation I don't, in that time, he was a Dugon fisher, uh, obviously an Aboriginal leader and resistance fighter. Um, and I'm sure like Dunderley, maybe he did some, did, did he do some sort of work, you know, in in, in sort of the township because it says he was a shepherd and labourer as well? Yes, well, his shepherding was while he was on uh, what what the whites called McGuire Station there at the Gap. Um, and the Dugon fishermen uh, he was known to uh, um, a white fisherman who um, was quite a brutal man and eventually um, Aboriginal people killed this 
this white fisherman. But in the court evidence, you know, they mention um, a couple of known Aboriginal warriors from Bribey Island. One is a man called Diamond and the other was Billy Barlow. So it was it was evidence that um, a lot of the uh, white businesses in the 1840s and 1850s um, was dependent on Aboriginal labourers. So there were many personal connections between leading Aboriginal men and some whites, you know, doing doing work around Moreton Bay or doing, um, you know, house building, which was what Dunderley was in the midst of when they captured him uh, and um, Billy uh, out at the Gap doing shepherding. So all those kind of... Um, uh, all that work and heavy manual labour that um, these fit young Aboriginal men were prepared to do um, when they wanted uh, access to European goods or access to European money. They'd come in and do some of these jobs for a while and then return to community. Yeah, I remember last time when we spoke, actually, that was sort of Dundalee's thing um, on the way to sort of uh, big events or ceremonies, he would sort of stop off and participate. Uh, you know, he'd get some work, you know, that'll keep him uh, keep him up for a bit and then sort of head to these different significant areas. And um, and, and, and chatting with yourself and other people as well, uh, uh, I'm sure that, um, you know, lots of the, the Aboriginal people maybe would use this as a cover, you know, to sort of uh, look like they're not just a, um, one part of the resistance, but, you know, two, they're sort yeah. of you know, making money on the side. Because back then, obviously, um, there wasn't photos to sort of say, hey, this is the culprit that we're looking for. Um, and I'm yeah. sure, you know, to maybe to Europeans back then, a lot of the black followers just, you know, uh, maybe looked alike or was or, or similar. So they, you know, it's not, not like they could have just sort of picked out you know, one or two, yeah. and said, you know, these are the individuals involved in these as well. Um, and obviously, well, sorry. Yeah. No, I was going to say, yeah, and I think it's partly to do with the fact that policing is pretty new in Western society. And so the police are starting, I mean, it's really interesting. The, the convict system had quite a bureaucracy associated with it. So we get detailed physical records of individual con convicts. If you go to convict records, you go to police records and you don't necessarily in the 1840s and 1850s get a very good description. We knew that they were, they knew that Dunderley was really tall. So they were quite scared of him, the town police. Um, with Billy Barlow, I was so excited when I saw that they, they had recorded a description of him. And I, I, you know, headed into the archives really keen. And honestly, all it said was he was a very good looking man. <laughs> So all I know about Billy Barlow's appearance, was, I, don't, I didn't get his age, I didn't get his height, they just didn't record it. But they did note Billy Barlow was a very good-looking Aboriginal man and he was arrested with another companion whose name currently escapes me. But the only thing they recorded about him was he had significant smallpox scarring. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we know Billy Barlow was a striking, good-looking uh, man uh, at the peak of his influence. <laughs> mm. Well, let's sort of get into more of his story then. Um, you know, as we, like, w when I first interviewed him, uh, sorry, when I first interviewed yourself, um, he came into the story um, in that first episode towards the end when sort of we were talking about, you know, they've captured Dunderley now uh, and you mentioned um uh, Billy wanted, Billy Barlow wanted to sort of revenge uh, uh, Dunderley and uh, and his honour. 
Um, mm. But, you know, as I mentioned before, as we both mentioned before, he was, you know, it says he was born around the Pine Rivers area in 1825. When did he become prominent to sort of uh, the settlers and, and, and they were sort of on the lookout for him? Yes. Um, he, he becomes really prominent in white records after 1852. 1852 um, was when they released a young Aboriginal man called Mikolo. Mikolo, Perica and Daraguri, I'm not sure if I'm saying Daraguri's name correctly, they had been um, arrested up in Marlborough, so they were either a bachelor or gubby gubby, I don't know. Um, but um, uh, they had been... Niccolo had been held, but all three had been held awaiting trial and then witnesses didn't show up and whatever. And in the end, authorities released them. And they first, when they were released from jail, went to Dundalee and said, we want revenge. But I've speculated that Dundalee, he was with another um, warrior and a whole group of um, young Aboriginal men in their teens. And they they come into the record because they actually um, did some actions around Cash's Crossing, which is a bit further north, of course, from from um, the suburb of the Gap. And um, so this presence of all these young Aboriginal men made me think that Dundalee and Tinkerbed were involved with doing some kind of initiation ceremony. And so Dundalee says no, and he actually stops, according to the whites, that so comes into the police, the police say... Um, Aboriginal people tell us that Dundalee stopped Mikolo and uh, the other two from uh, killing Mrs Cash. Mrs Cash was the wife of the station owner there at Cash's Crossing. Um, and she she in court gave a description where they clearly approached her for sex, but um, she refused and sure enough, they, they left. And I think that was part of Dundalee's influence that he's in the middle of initiation ceremony. He didn't want conflict, and he wanted he didn't want to do the revenge that Niccolo was asking for. So after that, Niccolo Perica and Daragiri head back to the Gap, where Billy Barlow was working on a station, and Billy Barlow agrees that he will uh, work with them. That you know they've got just cause after being held. Uh, Niccolo had been held on several occasions and been released, and. Um, at this point, uh, he'd been held uh, for several months. And the great irony is that Niccolo is, is and works with Billy Barlow to get revenge. The irony was that Niccolo's brother, Barra, he was up on the, at the Noosa River, north of the Noosa River, and he actually exacts payback because, because Niccolo was being held on a capital charge and if they had found him guilty, they were going to hang him. And the rumour went out around his people that they were going to hang Niccolo. And so Niccolo's brother takes revenge up here near Mount Coulomb uh, on the Sunshine Coast, while Niccolo and Billy Barlow take revenge there on McGrath Station at the Gap where um, uh, one of the shepherds uh, was, was killed. And the police claim that when they went to investigate that the spear uh, in the uh, dead shepherd could be identified as Billy Barlow's spear. I, I wish they'd told us more. I'd love to know how oh, the police could be so yeah. confident of the markings. Yes. Could they really read it or were they getting Aboriginal advice and an Aboriginal person identified, identified it perhaps as Billy Barlow's? But Billy had been working on the station. So to me, that seemed legitimate. Um, and it certainly 
rang true that we had more than one uh, occasion where Michelo had, you know, first of all, he'd approached Dunderley, then he'd approached Billy Barlow. Um, and uh, after that, uh, Michelo, Perica and Daragree went further north back to their own country. And the police put out an arrest warrant for Billy Barlow. And that's how he came into the police records. Um, he had been mentioned in earlier cases. He was present. He was said to have been present um, at an attack on uh, at Whiteside. So that was the Griffith family station at Whiteside, mm-hmm. um, uh, just down the road, actually, from where the uh, famous um, attack on Andrew Greger and his female servant the attack that Dunderley, you know, the wrath of the city of Brisbane fell on Dunderley's head because 1846, they carried out that attack on that station and killed two adult whites and left all the children. And then a year later, Dunderley, Billy Barlow and four other Aboriginal men who aren't named are involved in an attack on some sawyers, some people felling trees on Griffith Station there at Whiteside. And that's eventually um, the, the charges that get put against Dunderley, that sort of gets him hung? Yes, yeah. William William Waller yeah. and William Boller. Yeah, mm. yep. So, um, uh, yeah, that was 1847. But the police were focused in that period on Dunderley, so they didn't really go for Billy Barlow until this attack at the Gap uh, sheep station in 1852. Just After re- that, though, yep. Oh, no, sorry, I'll... I'll um... I've just recently caught up with Lindley Wallace, who was doing some amazing work in the space of um, recording the history of the Native Mounted Police. Uh, w- were they established by this time, or were they sort of? Yes, later? they were. What, yep. What was that? The, oh, sorry, yeah, go. Oh well, the the whole problem was that um, Captain Wickham, the police magistrate for Brisbane, kept requesting a a. a, a a platoon of um, but not the term. What do we? What was the term they used? But yeah, a detachment. Mm. Yeah, detachment of native police for Brisbane. But there was so much conflict going on around Maribor, around the Burnett, around Rockhampton, that um, the authorities kept saying, "No, no, no, Brisbane settled. You can't have a you know." But oh, they in they did um, like in terms of like frontier conflict in these other areas. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So um, they're very active up around central Queensland. And so they, they don't form until 1848. They don't really get, that's when they start recruiting, but they start un- undertaking operations on the Darling Downs and further west and up in towards, um, you know, what we now call central Queensland uh, soon after that. Um, and mm. um, the uh, head of the Native Police does bring detachments to Brisbane every now and then because they've got to appear in trials. So he did actually come through the area in 1852. And the interesting thing is Commandant Walker actually brought in a number of young Aboriginal men who were accused of uh, participating in the attack at Gregor Station. And um, Walker's disgusted. The Commandant actually writes, to the government and says there should be an amnesty on all Aboriginal people who participated in that attack other than Dundley. Um, you know, he thought it was just crazy to think you could just... Because he said, basically, I could arrest every Aboriginal man to the north of Brisbane. You know, we we mm. think that there were so many participants in that Gregor Station attack, um, which which is a bit different, you see, to what, ha- what Billy Barlow was involved in there at the Gap. That was a small-scale, precise attack and then Niccolo goes north, 
Billy Barlow, I presume, goes back to Bribie Island because the police can't get him, uh, they, but they issue an arrest warrant. Mm. And that's why, yeah, they couldn't bring in Walker at this point. Walker wasn't available. It was town police. And yeah, that was, yeah. So at this time, obviously, they're trying to settle uh, many parts of Queensland. The native, like, I guess officially it's sort of not um, Queensland yet as well, I believe. Is that right? That's right, yeah. It's all still part of New South uh, Wales. Yeah, yeah. So Brisbane is the furthest colony north, I guess, of the of the New South Wales colony. That That's well established. Um, and you're mentioning sort of um, the sort of head police is wanting uh, detachments of native police. So they really have, you know, uh, the town of Brisbane uh, petrified and, and, and just sort of scared. Yeah, um, they're petrified while Dundalese, um at, at large, you know, while, while they can't have, can't arrest him. And then once they arrest him, they're petrified because Billy Barlow and other young Aboriginal men are exacting payback. They're coming into... So the Brisbane people are writing to the newspaper saying, you know, we can't be safe at night. These young men come into the town at night and carry out attacks. Um, what kind of attacks and, are they carrying and, out? Like just sort of on on, on cattle, on, on some some of the sheep, some of the stock, burning some of um, the crops. Or, or how well is it? How well established is sort of Brisbane? Is it? Um, yeah, it's how, pretty. Um, it's pretty much confined to the CBD and South Brisbane, and then you've got farms at Breakfast Creek, and you've got farms starting to be set up around Nunda, where the mission was um, or had been um, but otherwise and you've got you've got a sheep station at the gap by 1852 so, so while um, under these locked up are there still these young men uh, Billy Barlow uh, are they are they carrying out sort of attacks yeah and uh, um, while um, while Dundalee's uh, locked up Yes. So in particular, um, he goes for a Brisbane Aboriginal man. I, I could not find what Murky, it's, there, the Europeans variously spelt this man's name M-U-R-K-I or M-O-O-K-I or M-O-O-K-Y. So Murky, Murky, something like that. Dundalee, uh, uh manages to um, uh, hit him with a tomahawk, but he... It must have been incredibly tough. He swam across the river. So that attack happened uh, somewhere near Petrie Bight and Murky was able to swim at night into the river to escape from Billy Barlow. So that was very much one-on-one. Um, but, yeah, so Billy Barlow is coming in with young other Abor- Aboriginal men to tell any of the whites who had collaborated with the town police in Dundalee's capture that, you know, they were going to avenge Dundalee. And but coming into the town at night, they they are they they're going through they're going through their own country. But whites now regard their, this this country as their farm, and obviously um, they're going to take whatever they need for food on the way. Um, but they were generally uh, coming in at night and returning, as far as I could tell, to either Pine Rivers or Bribie Island. So they're they're covering amazing distances, but this did seem to be the pattern. Perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps they just went as far as somewhere like Nudgee because, but these are coastal men and I've got evidence of, of the, the coastal Aboriginal people from luggage point at the Northern side of the Brisbane river, all the way North to Bribie Island as kind of um, evicting whites whenever they can. Um, and uh, so it make, they make it impossible 
for whites to settle at Sandgate. They just kept up their attacks until they finally do get a detachment of native police based at Sandgate in 1859. And after that, it becomes possible for whites to settle Sandgate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm not sure where precisely Billy Barlow and his other warriors, you know, what their staging posts were. I just know that um, that Bribey Island seemed to be their base. Bribey Island was where there was a the, the culture of, of the warriors who were going to defend Dunsley made their base mm. and, and radiated from that. And I think, I think chatting with you previously as well, that was sort of a base for Dunsley as well. Mm. Like he would sort of travel through that. Like that'll be on his way to sort of bribery. He would take a certain path that would, he would sort of lose uh, the police. Yeah, so I've got, um, actually, before we get off the native police, I must tell you, Bo, about Billy Barlow's relationship with the native police. Mm-hmm. When they wanted, you know, a permanent detachment in Brisbane, they had to recruit. And um, Commandant Walker, by this stage, had been deposed. He was no longer head. He wasn't aggressive enough as far as the whites were concerned. And they got rid of him in December 1854, which is incredible because Walker, anyway, that, that's a whole other story that... Lindley uh, would be better to tell. But um, what happened was uh, they started recruiting around Brisbane and sent an Aboriginal sergeant um, from the established force around the Aboriginal villages uh, near Brisbane. And he actually made his way as far north as Caboolture when Billy Barlow came across him. And Billy Barlow immediately attacked him and sliced off his arm completely. Mm-hmm. Aboriginal women then tried to um, uh, stop stem the bleeding and um, I'm not sure if they used this technique but I know up on the Darling Downs they used to um, put clay into wounds to, to stem stem bleeding and uh, but they didn't succeed in, in rescuing this man. This Aboriginal sergeant ended up dying but it was kind of Billy Barlow's statement you will not recruit on our country you know, go back, <laughs> go away. Um, and it just added then to the reputation of, of Billy Barlow and the Bribey Islanders. Um, yeah, although, you know, it's interesting. The Whites don't, are never as fearful of Billy Barlow as they were of Dunsley. There doesn't seem to be quite the same obsession. And I'd say that's because that population balance is starting to shift. Now, we were talking about how in the 1840s there were more Aboriginal people in this region than there were Whites. Um, but the population just grew and grew and grew as ship after ship came into Brisbane in the 1850s. Um, and, uh, and that's why, yeah, these, um, Billy Barlow and his community are so important in trying to stop how far these whites are going to come onto the coastal territory uh, uh, from the north of the Brisbane River up to Bribe Island. They're trying to stop incursions onto their country. Mm. Um, so... <clears throat> We're sort of yarning in and around the time uh, when Dunderley uh, was caught. Uh, he, he's in uh, custody uh, for, I believe, is, is, is it a couple of weeks or, or a couple of months before his official hanging and Billy Barlow is recruiting young men and they're coming into the city or the township of Brisbane just to scare the people, maybe carry out some attacks. Um, you know, and eventually, you know, um, you know, Dunderley is is hung. Um, it's executed, it's yeah. It's executed um, publicly. Um, 
and I think from chatting to you and, and other sort of people who know this history, it was a very um, violent sort of um, uh, a way that uh, Dunderley went out. He was he was too large for the gallows, and they sort of had to hold him mm. hold him a certain way. Um, pretty full on, I guess, for for the audience to see, maybe or maybe not. But in terms of his supporters, I guess it was. Uh, what happens? Yes. Where where does Billy Barlow sort of stand after this, and what sort of yes. is carried out? Yeah. Well, um, we we believe Billy Barlow was there um, up on Wickham Terrace, up up where or Anne Street, up where. Central Station now is, that that was where Billy Barlow, Barlow, Dunderley's wife, and we believe Billy Barlow and other Bloody Islanders all were to witness the hanging. And that's part of the reason why the Township of Brisbane was so afraid when they uh, finally did hang Dunderley was because uh, there had been, Billy Barlow had been sending his men in at night um, in the, because Dunderley was held from May till November was his trial, so he was held for six months. Then, because he was found guilty, he was ha- held uh, then until um, the 5th of January, 1855. So all up, he was almost um, eight months in custody. And having these uh, aggressive warriors coming in and actually um, you know, attacking Aboriginal people there at Victoria Park and word getting back to the whites and coming through their farms and so on. They, they, there was heightened tension. There was another important assault that I should mention uh, that happened in Moreton Bay while Dunderley was in custody awaiting trial. Uh, so his trial was November. This took place, uh, actually, um, it's, well, it's reported in the press around about November. So two, the, um, because of the, because they hadn't yet built Brisbane Port, the mouth of the Brisbane River used to silt up with sand, just as, you know, Talabudgera Creek does and other coastal rivers. You get a build-up of sand because they weren't dredging it and they hadn't yet built the port. So what they used to do was the ships used to come up to uh, Strabroke Island uh, and then they would get a... Um, they would either have a tug bring them into up the Brisbane River, up... up a, a boat, a harbour boats crew, or else they would land at Stradbroke and offload. So a harbour, there's a harbour crew. There's a crew of men who are rowing boats out to greet ships coming in through Moreton Bay, and um, there'd be one or two whites, but they were very dependent on Aboriginal labour to man the crew. And uh, sometime in the 1840s, men of the uh, harbour crew and men stationed at the uh, lighthouse. Um, uh, well, met, there was a harbour master's post. Um, some Kwandamuka women. Mm-hmm. This happened back in 1846, and um, you know, Dunderley tried to avenge those sexual assaults of those girls. We know one of the girls was only 10 or 11 years old. It's the only one where we've got the white swearing on evidence about what happened. And that's how we know one of these young Kwandamuka wives meant she, that was the way she, she was described. Uh, it meant she was betrothed. You know how girls were often promised at birth. So she had been betrothed to somebody. So she was an important little girl and she was sexually assaulted. And um, But she wasn't the only one. We've got that one. That one goes in trial. Anyway, in 1847, when Dunderley and Billy Barlow attacked the Sawyers on Griffith Station, um, I think, you know, when D- Dunderley was asked, why are you attacking us by the Sawyers? And he 
and one of the things Dunsley is supposed to have said to them is, where are the gins? You know, where are our women? Because they had not only sexually assaulted them, the, the whites had kept some of the women. Um, now, what is interesting, sorry, it's a quite convoluted story, but in 1854, mm. some of those attacks on those Aboriginal women and girls had not been avenged. And I think that Gould and Anderson are the name of the two white men on the Harbour Master's boat who go missing. Bodies never found. They go missing in Moreton Bay, but everybody knows that they were seeking Aboriginal crew. So I think Billy Barlow probably also took out Gould and Anderson while Dunderley was awaiting trial. And the reason why I'm, I mean, I can't be sure. We, we, it's a supposition, but something happened there. They found the boat and there was blood in the boat, but they never found Gould and Anderson's body. But mm. um, some years after Dunderley was executed, uh, they, there's another attack by Billy Barlow, which was really astonishing in, it, in his tactics about how he isolated the whites he wanted. And again, the, the man he killed in um, 1859 had been the one who swore in court. He was, he was not ashamed of it. He, he admitted on oath in court that he had assaulted this Aboriginal, sexually assaulted this Aboriginal girl, mm. and that's who Billy Barlow kills, and that's in an ambush on the Caboolture River in 1859. And that's why I've often looked back. I knew that, you know, Dunderley had said, where are the gins at this attack at Whiteside Station in 1847? And we've got Gould and Anderson going missing while Dunderley's in custody, and, I, and then we've got Billy Barlow taking out a man by the name of Peter Glynn who admitted on oath that he had sexually assaulted one of the Quandamooka girls. Um, and I thought Billy was associated, was involved in, in that 1859 attack on Peter, Peter Glynn. He was involved in the attack on the Sawyers there at Whiteside. Was the attack on Gould and Anderson also part of this? We have not forgotten what you did to our women and you will, you know, we are carrying out the, our law against you for your offences against us. And so Billy Barlow is continuing Dunderley's legacy even while Dunderley's in custody. Um, and I do, I mean, I, the strongest evidence is about Billy Barlow's attack on the Caboolture River in 1859. And he was so, he was so precise, which was very similar to the way Dunderley used to operate. He um, essentially, uh, a group of, of uh, whites, there were, there were six whites involved and they wanted to get out, go out and bring in some cedar to make some money. Cedar, of course, very lucrative. And uh, Peter Glynn, who had committed the assault back in 1847, uh, was kind of part of this group. And um, they had hired a boat and they headed up, first of all, um, near Deception Bay. And then they saw some Aboriginal men on the um, foreshore and the Aboriginal men called out to them and said, you know, what are you doing? And they both exchanged conversation about what they were up to and uh, shared tea and tobacco, I think it was. And um, at some point, Billy Barlow joined them. The newspaper never um, did not name uh, Billy Barlow. Another um, uh, a colonial historian <laughs> says it was Billy Barlow. 
and uh, I had to piece all this together, these different accounts by different witnesses about what happened. But um, essentially, um, the, the, the Billy Barlow says to them, you know, come back tomorrow and we'll provide some guides because the whites wanted guides. They knew Aboriginal people knew where the best forest was, and the best forest timber. So the next day, Billy Barlow arranges for himself and three other men to join this party of six whites. Now, remember, the whites are all armed. And uh, but Billy Barlow says, no, no, we'll, mm. we'll come with you. Incredibly brave. Directs them up the Caboolture River. They have to go quite a way up the Caboolture River to get to stands of rainforest. Um, but Billy Barlow knows the country and he, his authority is really clear. The whites do whatever he asks. So he initially gets them to stop at one point and um, he makes the young, there's one young Aboriginal man who's still in his teens and he's really angry, but Billy Barley says to him, you are to stay. I think this is the first indication that there is going to be, um, there's going to be conflict and Billy Barley's protecting mm. this young man. Um, and four whites get off with them and land in the middle of thick rainforest scrub. So there's two whites still on the boat and one young Aboriginal man on the boat. Um, after a few hundred ye what yards, um, Billy Barlow stops and says, look, we, um, we're, we're going in this direction. You two white men should go back to the boat and tell him to go further upstream. And he gives them a point upstream. So two white men go back to the boat. There's now three unarmed Aboriginal men and two white men who are armed. And the two white men are named Peter Glynn and Peter Grant. And Grant and Glynn is a former convict. And um, I think uh, Grant is remembering that they had sexually assaulted these young women because Grant is incredibly nervous, even though they're armed. Um, and uh, the interesting thing was, I can't remember what happened, but some alert goes back to the boat. That's uh, right, something happens in the bush that the whites aren't aware of, but the young Aboriginal man suddenly gets up, jumps off the boat and comes into the scrub. He obviously is going to follow Billy Barlow. And at this point, the whites get worried and start looking for their ammunition and realise that Glenn and Grant have got the only working guns and not taken all the ammunition with them. So they, mm -hmm. they are very nervous. They sleep in the boat overnight. And what has happened is, yes, despite the fact that um, Grant is so nervous, he's got the Aboriginal men in front of him, he's got his armed gun pointing pointed at them um, and he gets nervous and he accidentally discharges the gun and that is that's right it was the gunshot that was what caused the young men on the boat to jump and made the whites back at the boat really nervous um, they hear the gunshot there's only the one um, but Billy Barlow then turns around overpowers um, both Glynn and Grant and um, uh, Grant is uh, left for dead. Glynn keeps clinging to his weapon. I don't know whether it was a gun or a rifle, but he refuses to let go of it. And they bash his hands, trying to get him to let go of his gun um, until uh, he also falls unconscious. But it turns out Glenn is actually still alive. But what happens is the minute the, the, the scrub is so impenetrable that the whites can't find him, they nervously stay on the boat overnight then they head back to Brisbane to get help um, and the police have to go up to Caboolture there is a white station a cattle station um, established at Caboolture it hadn't been there in 1846 but by 1859 there is a cattle station there and uh, from there the police rely on um, an Aboriginal guide to help them find uh, Glyn and Grant's body in the bush 
Um, Glenn eventually calls back to the station. He'd been out overnight, two or three nights. He couldn't even hold up his trousers. The um, Aboriginal weapons had so damaged his hands. So he was crawling. (laughs) He had to crawl to the station about six miles, they reckon. Um, Mm. And... uh, uh, but he did recover, and uh, the police then uh, out looking uh, for Billy Barlow. Um, but they never get him. They never get Billy. Um, and uh, I just remember reading this story and thinking, oh, my God, thank, thank God somebody finally took action uh, for Grant because this was 11 years um, that he had been, you know, the, the white system, the white legal system failed to convict him. He actually got off. Uh, in this case in 1847, but now finally we get an Aboriginal man uh, taking revenge for his sexual abuse of a young girl. Glyn, um, Glyn goes, gets taken back to Brisbane Hospital and recovers, and but he, he nonetheless uh, gets drunk one night and he's down by the river and falls into the river and drowns anyway. <laughs> mm. um, but uh, there is one more important part of Billy Barlow's story. Uh, am I talking too long here? No, no it's good. Bo? It's good. This is good. Okay. So the other amazing story is also a story from 1859, and it's um, it's the story of two uh, young Aboriginal couples and their children. So um, young couples, presumably in their early twenties. Um, I, I one of the men was referred to by Tom Petrie as Billy Dingy. Um, there's a different uh, name used in newspaper records, and it's not coming to me at the moment, but this story uh, is retold by Tom Petrie. He gets a couple of details wrong compared with the evidence as it was reported in 1859 and 1860. But um, this is how we know that... Um, that Billy Barlow sometimes went fishing and dugong hunting just as Dunderley had uh, with whites uh, because this is the story of, of the, the fisherman, a man by the name of Collins, who went out. He had, um, we don't even have the name of all the whites, let alone the name of the Aboriginal participants, but essentially Collins' body washed up at the mouth of the river and um, it was mangled. And so uh, there was a colonial inquest into what had happened to, to Collins. And his wife said, well, he went out with an American and a Dutchman. Uh, they were going to get uh, Aboriginal uh, fishermen to help them because they wanted to go dugong hunting. And um, what happened was Collins and the other two whites had taken the boat up to um, Redcliffe. And there, there were some Aboriginal families camped on the beach. The two young Aboriginal families wanted to get to, this all happened December, January, and they were trying to get up to the Bunya Festival. So they were keen to talk to the white men, but then uh, Collins had been drinking, he had a gun, he was, uh, you know, they didn't trust him, so they didn't want to go in the boat with him. Collins brings out a document and he says to Billy Dingy and the other young Aboriginal man, this is a warrant for Billy Barlow's arrest. If you don't uh, come with me, I'm going to uh, take out Billy Barlow. I'm going to get get him arrested. So it was that coercion that convinced young Billy Barlow and the other young Aboriginal man to get on the boat with their families uh, with the promise that Colin said, oh, yeah, 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 I'll take it. You help us hunt and then we'll drop you uh, at Caloundra so you can get up to the Bunya gathering. Of course, Colin's lied and he took them south and he took them to uh, St. Helena Island 
where um, Tom Petrie tells us that the three European, they're not Europeans, one's American, one's Dutch, one's Tom Collins, one's English, I presume, or Australian. And um, they they raped the Aboriginal women. Tom Petrie's daughter, who's telling the story, of course, in the Edwardian era, is very polite. And she says they stole the wives. But this is, this is her polite way of saying mm. rape was taking place. So, um, and this is because Collins is armed. The two Aboriginal men were powerless as these men abused their wives. So what Dingy did and the other man, they waited. It was clear that Collins was not going to take them uh, up to Caloundra and so they could get to the Bunya Festival. So they were stuck on this island and he just waited until he had each of these white men on their own and he killed each of them. Although only to- Colin's body was the only one that ever washed ashore, but we presume that yeah, we've got um, the Aboriginal version, as was told to Tom Petrie, that in fact Dingy and his other Aboriginal uh, male warrior had um, taken out the Dutchman, the American, as well as Collins, mm. in Re- and then got their family. Um, so th- the way Petrie tells it, my memory is that there were actually small children with the with the wives as well. And they took everything. So the Aboriginal men then took Collins's boat, sailed it up to Caloundra. They left the boat and all its provisions at Caloundra ashore and went with their families to the Bunya. And then later reported it to, to Tom Petrie so that the whites wouldn't come after them. So, um, you know, Aboriginal people were really good at um, telling what had happened. Whites were terrible at listening. So um, the papers still ranted and raved, you know, about uh, how much they'd steered Bribey Island. The native police should get onto Bribey Island and clear it out because everybody knew that all these troublemakers came from this part of the coast. Um, but it's just, I just, it's just an important part of Billy Barlow's story because it was the threat of Billy Barlow's arrest that these young men said, right, we'll have to go along with this man. Um, but again, there's that, you know, it's so hard for historians to find out what happened on the frontier. And here we've got this, this evidence about a sexual assault taking place and these young men taking care of it because what mm. was the point? You know, whites did nothing. So, um, and it was still their country. They're, they want to get to the Bunya Festival. They're going to take care of things and, and make their way there. Yeah, so um, I never found out what yeah, Alex and I went looking to find out what what happened to Billy Barlow, but we we just know he gets written up in colonial histories as a te- you know another man that whites are terrified of, um, and he he eventually they end the whites end up calling him Bellow. They call him Doctor Bellow, so he starts as a young man where they're calling him Billy Barlow, but then they as more and more whites come into the township, names start getting mm. confused and. You know He's given instead the name Barlow. Mm. Do you know why they gave him that name? No, I've tried to establish whether Barlow Barlow had a connection. Dr. Barlow was a doctor in the township of Brisbane um, and he was also a magistrate. But he dies quite early on. He was a Scottish doctor um, and uh, he was quite prominent. He dies over on um, at Dunwich, I think, when a, mm. a ship comes in with typhoid fever. And he goes out to treat um, uh, all those who are on board who are sick, and he ends up dying. So, why that name is then given to Billy Barlow, uh, I don't know. Couldn't couldn't establish the link, but you know, yeah, 
it was one of those um, Dr. Bellow was a personality around Brisbane mm. uh, in the in eighteen fifty. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, very interesting um, uh, story. Uh, Billy Barlow has um, in terms of who he was and how he carried out his responsibilities as well. Um, mm. You know, re- you know, revenging or you know, uh, looking after. Um, holding those sort of promises, you know, one of them was like eleven years or, or ten years yeah. later, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, like I like I've sort of run out of questions to ask. Um, I guess is there anything else? Um, yeah. Add oh, to I just story as well. Yeah. Well, this comes from Alex, who's Gubby Gubby, of course, and he's he says that the Gubby Gubby reckon that uh, Billy Barlow went up and joined the resistance around um, uh, Hornet's, Hornet Bank, you know, that horrible mm. attack. Um, well, uh, the, the um, attack on the Fraser family and what was horrible was the native police and all the whites go out in posses and just attacking, Aborig- you know, massacres of Aboriginal people around around uh, central Queensland there, around Tarum, Wondo, and that, I think that's kind of the country we're talking about. Uh, but if he did, I mean, that was 1857, 58, all that bloodshed happening up there. Um, Billy Barlow's came, must have come back and survived that, uh, that, those, that resistance up there. Um, and there is still resistance going on around Brisbane. As I said, they're keeping whites away from that country until Tom Petrie, they're, um, they're very happy when Tom Petrie takes up part of the Griffin family run. Um, it was it was kind of from now from the Bruce Highway to the coast. So when you get to Pine River, um, all of that coastal part of the highway, um, once Tom Petrie had set up his cattle station there, Aboriginal people could relax. They could cross over their country without any worries. And it's a good, you no know, important connecting point to Bribe Island. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, it's interesting that, that Billy Barlow never stopped the cattle station at Caboolture. I've sometimes wondered if it was because it was set up by one of the Nunda missionaries. Um, and so there may have been personal relationships between Zillman, the missionary, and um, some of Billy Barlow's people because mm. they had, back when they first arrived in 1838, there'd been name exchange going on uh, I don't know I don't know I just found it interesting that they allowed Caboolture station to be formed but they had Dunderley and others had stopped um, that area around Burpengary being settled um, but yeah whites uh, north of Caboolture it's still pretty safe whites go into the mountainous country but the coastal uh, area is safe until we get yeah until we get the native police Native mm. police wreak havoc then after 1859, 1860. Mm, mm. No, thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, for that as but well. W- but whites were still very scared of the Bribey Islanders into the 1860s. Mm. They, they, you didn't want to have a shipwreck up there, that part of the Moreton Bay. And they, they were sort of, the newspaper was very resentful that, you know, you could sail into Brisbane from the northern part of the bay and yet there was Bribey Island there, you know, looming as a potential threat all the time in their consciousness mm. well, and remember, sometimes in their editorial. I remember actually yeah, chatting with um, Ray Kirkove and Uncle Dale Rusker in like previous episodes and they were mentioning sort of this fierce sort of 
uh, trek up along the coast um, and how Aboriginal people would constantly sort of communicate saying, um, you know, these people are coming, you know, we're either warring or fighting with them. So, um, yeah. and, and they spoke about how, like, there were shipwrecks and, you know, there were um, whalers or whoever they were sort of trying to drift onto some, one of the, some of these islands but because mm. of how hostile some of the mob were, because uh, they were, you know, fighting uh, some of the uh, the settlers at the time. So any settler that, that was in a boat that got near, you know, was mm. set upon or was told, you know what I mean, keep moving along. And, you know, they, they would be sort of for hours or if not days sort of, you know, going along the coastline trying to find somewhere to – or waiting for night to hit so they can sneak up on the coast. Mm. Sneak up onto the mainland, sorry, yeah. Yeah. The, the whites really wanted – to that you know, say, I mean, this is beautiful country, isn't it? Sandgate and Redcliffe, mm. and they uh, they had land sales to Sandgate when they couldn't settle it because of Aboriginal resistance. So all they could, you know, so the people who bought land parcels complaining endlessly. In the end, um, Captain Wickham said, "All right, we'll we'll just have a um, the uh, chief constable and one other mounted policeman would go on horseback once a week up through that country." And the reason we know about it is because Aboriginal people then send smoke signals. White com- the newspaper commented, mm. you could see the smoke signals up around the base. Like you knew where the mounted police were. There were only two of them, so they didn't launch any attacks. Um, but uh, And usually they didn't come across Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people avoided them uh, because they knew they were coming because they'd send the smoke signals as they went. Um, mm. And that's just another sign of how effectively they... Um, controlled that country for many years mm. yeah no it's, it's it's amazing like um i enjoyed my conversation with ray about um communication on the frontier uh, last mm. uh in episode 19 um uh which w- w- yeah the the many forms of communication that mob used um mm. throughout the frontier and how they could just sort of how clearly they could sort of have a have have dialogue, I guess you could say, through uh, the smoke signalling and and how sort of clear the, you know, um, what they were saying, you know, and and, and how, yeah. you know, uh, when when sort of the the native mounted police got to one camp or you know, the police got to another camp, they knew exactly what was happening there because the last camp mm. told them, you know what I mean, exactly mm. how many people, what they were doing, and they were just astonished on how clear. Um, mm. The conversation was through through smoke signaling as well. Um, we've uh, uh, we've come to the end. Um, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I, and sorry, Bo. I, I no, guess okay. the other thing I wanted to say was, um, if you ever do read any colonial histories, and and Bellow comes into them, you know they 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 depict him in these crazy stereotypes of the savage. And then I went when you go and look at the data, here is a man taking care of his women and children. You know, you'd love to know what the family connections were to the Kwandamooka women because, you know, there's quite, you know, the Kwandamooka nation are quite distant politically from the Barbie Islanders and yet it's the Barbie Islanders. And I thought, I bet they were their sisters. They were, I bet Billy Barlow was uncle to some of these women Mm. as Dundalee would have been. And you just get this, these, these are men defending families just as Billy Dingy was defending his family. And it's the complete opposite to the stereotype that that the colonial history wanted to give us. You know, it's just a complete 
load of nonsense. And even the stereotype we get today in mm. you know, contemporary political discourse, these are Aboriginal men risking their lives to avenge injustices that have been perpetrated against their families. So I just find Billy Barlow's record you know, in each of these assaults as really interesting that he's, mm. um, you know, it, it was defence of women that seemed to be... Well, uh, uh, he started it, yeah. Also, I was, Sorry. Gonna, I was just agreeing with what you were saying and, you know, I guess the most accounts of why Aboriginal people sort of resisted against colonial forces was because of, you know, uh, there was... Um, uh, stealing, stealing the wives of Aboriginal people, or raping, mm. uh, and 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 you know harming sort of you know young people, mm. or, or even just outright sort of killing other Aboriginal people. You know, like you mentioned, it was a sort of in the, in, or it was always in the defence of sort of someone, or you know, yeah. the law being broken. And I always wondered, you know, when um, when Peter Glynn was in court back in eighteen forty seven, and yeah, you know, we only get a few lines in a newspaper about what would happen. Um, but, you know, there were whites present and, and they did try, you know, part of the reason why Glynn ends up in court is that whites did try to prosecute him. But why they didn't stop the sexual abuse of that little girl that night was because Peter Glynn was armed. I thought, oh, my God, you know, there are, these are women and children on a beach with a white man who's drunk and armed and is so aggressive that other white men couldn't get the gun off him. Um, they had tried in the middle of the night to stop him and failed. And that's why later they say, well, we're going to, they take out a warrant and get him arrested and he appears before court because they hadn't been mm. able to stop it at the time. So it's just a reminder of how vulnerable families were, um, that all it took was one dry, drunk white man to come into a camp at night. Um, and the level of threat, you know, was, was horrible. It's just, yeah. You know mm. how um, how important the Billy Barlows and the Dundleys and the Multagras were because yes. it was protecting their families from these. Yeah, because mm. the the gender imbalance amongst the incoming white settlers too is still extreme. Even though there's more women coming with the migrant ships, but it's still overwhelmingly mm. men. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. It is. Yeah, I remember chatting with um, Jimmy Kyle, who's. He's the lead singer of uh, Ch uh, Chasing Ghosts, which is a punk rock band in Melbourne, and he's an Aboriginal man from New South Wales. He wrote a song about um, uh, the Tower Creek Massacre uh, on his country in, in just in uh, northern New South Wales. And, yeah, he, he mentioned sort of the like how disproportionately the numbers were in terms of male and female mm. um, uh, settlers, and, and and yeah, you know, and, and sort of pointed out why why there were sort of high rates of Aboriginal women being stolen or, or raped and stuff uh, in this mm. earlier time as well uh, by European settlers, in particular mm. men. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Oh well, I must go and make some time to listen to some of your podcasts, yeah. though. I especially want to hear Dale's. Yeah, yeah Dale's the Quantum yeah, it'd be good to get their side of, you know, I've been researching Billy Barlow and Dunderley's side. It'd be good to hear their, they they would have a record of some of these events from their perspective. It'd be really interesting. Mm. And, you know, I, I interviewed you like um, mid last year, I think you like episode three or four. And, you know, thankfully, you know, this time I talk to you now, it's episode 20. So there's quite yeah. a few uh, episodes that are out now and they've been well received by people you know, around the country. Um, so, you know, I'm very thankful that, you know, this has sort of opened up 
um, some interest in sort of the the broader, you know, Australian community um, about mm. the true history of this country um, as and, well. Yeah, and so good in the lead up to Anzac Day to get yes. this the yes. Frontier Wars out there for Anzac Day. Yes, mm. well, well, initially I started it last year when I spoke to Callum Clayton Dixon about his book on, 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 on frontier conflict in the New England area, just over the border in New South Wales. Uh, we actually recorded recorded via Zoom. Um, uh, it was that night, Anzac night, the 25th. Um, and then I think I'll put it up later that day. Oh, sorry, later that night um, on, on, on a streaming platform that I don't really use at the, anymore. Mm, wonderful. Great. Mm. Congratulations. That's really good. No, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, but, you know, for anybody, you know, who is tuning in this episode 20, my guest is Libby Connors, and uh, we're having a chat about the good-looking warrior or the, the handsome warrior. Um, I think that's what I'll call this episode because I remember when we spoke ages ago, like, I was like, oh, yeah, we need yes. to do that. Thing. We need to do this uh, one about Billy Barlow, <laughs> and we'll call it this here. But, no, thanks for that, and it's always a pleasure um, having, a, having a chat with you. Oh, pleasure. All mine. Thanks, guys.